Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, here to talk once again with you about Elon Musk versus Twitter. Now, I know it's been a few days since we last looked at this particular topic, so if you need a refresher, I highly recommend checking out our Elon Musk versus Twitter, now I think the third or fourth name for this playlist series of videos. This will be the 18th video in this series. But suffice it to say, as it stands right now, Elon Musk has attempted to back out of his $44 billion purchase of Twitter. Twitter has sued him in the Court of Chancery in Delaware, and they are proceeding along a timeline that would suggest that that lawsuit is going to be held in trial in the middle of October of this year. Now, if you're interested in our walkthrough of that entire episode, we do have a Hangouts and Headlines episode that's in this playlist. I know a number of you didn't like that format for going over one of these documents. We're going back to the old format for this newest document, but you can check out in a three and a half hour video our overview of the Twitter lawsuit, which effectively alleges that Mr. Musk is a pretextualist, that he is lying about why he is trying to get out of this deal. His claim is that they didn't give him information that he otherwise wanted, that they were lying about the representations and warranties that they put in the merger agreement and that they've made to the Securities and Exchange Commission, and that that's why he should be able to leave. Twitter says, no, that's ridiculous. We gave him more than he asked for. We bent over backwards, and he was just worried about the value of his Tesla stock. Now, obviously, in a three and a half hour video, there's a lot more details there that you can go check out for yourselves. But today, we're going to talk about what was made public about five days ago, even though it was filed about a week before that, which is the fact that Elon Musk is countersuing Twitter for effectively damages for keeping this ongoing and threatening him with making him actually buy their company. So we're going to be looking at that document. You might have also seen in the thumbnail that I marked this as part one. It's about a 165-page document. We're going to be going through the first 91 pages or so. In part two, we'll be going over his answers to what Twitter has claimed against him as well as his affirmative defenses. And then in a video after that one, because so much has been filed already in this multi-billion dollar case, we'll be looking at Twitter's answers to Elon's lawsuit. We've got a lot to go over, but we start here with the countersuit. Before we do that, however, I do want to point out to folks that this is a subscriber, user, and member-supported channel. If you enjoy this content, if you don't know about it yet, please watch the video first. But if you enjoy it already, please do check out supporting the channel at Utreon or Patreon. And in one of those tiers, you can support a given episode, which is what dear friend of the channel Nord has already elected to do this month. Nord has been a big supporter of the channel for a long time. Special thanks to Nord for using the Utreon and the Patreon and the other tiers in order to support an episode like this one. I also want to thank The Verge for actually putting up an article that links directly to the lawsuit documents in question, especially when they were made public on August 5th. They did it in an article entitled, This is Elon Musk's Case Alleging Twitter Committed Fraud which is just the smallest sliver of what Elon Musk actually alleges here. But I do want to call that out. I will link it in the description because I love it when outlets otherwise link to the legal materials themselves because that's what we like to go over here. So without further ado, and in an effort to keep 91 pages of legal documentation at least somewhat palatable in both amount, concept, and time, let's dive in. So we have 
the defendant's verified counterclaims, answer, and affirmative defenses to plaintiff's verified complaint. We will only be reading counterclaims today. So if you think about the process here, Twitter has sued Elon Musk. Elon Musk is suing them back. If perhaps you watched Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard or otherwise covered that with us here, you would have seen that Johnny Depp sued for defamation. Amber Heard countersued him right back. And in that particular case, they both won. Now, I don't believe that both sides can win in this case because Twitter has sued Elon Musk to force him to buy the company, and Elon Musk clearly would rather not do that at this point in time, or at least at the price that was originally offered. So it seems like the Highlander, there can only be one winner in this particular circumstance, but you never know what a court will do. And now Elon Musk has sued Twitter primarily to put an exclamation point on his answer here. He doesn't have a really strong theory of suit here other than to get rescission of the agreement. He's not looking for a lot more than that, but he is doing it uh, with panache. So let's take a look at what he says. Defendants and counterclaim plaintiffs, Elon Musk, his two holding companies, hereby submit their counterclaims answer and affirmative defenses document. And what is this all about? Well, this action arises out of Twitter's misrepresentations to the Musk parties regarding the condition of the company and the key metrics Twitter uses to evaluate the number of users on its platform. If you've been following along with us, you know where this is going. The main plank of what Elon Musk and his team are arguing is that the monetizable daily active users number, the MDAU, that Twitter otherwise uses to establish the growth of its subscriber base is false, is not properly uh, calculated, does not account for the number of false and spam accounts that otherwise comprise it. And Elon Musk feels that that is enough of a breach of the agreement to allow him to walk away. While the Musk parties negotiated for representations as to the truth of Twitter's SEC disclosures, relying on their accuracy, the statements in the SEC disclosures were far from true. Now, this follows along with something that we've seen in Twitter. We saw in Gizmodo in Hangouts and Headlines uh, earlier this week. We've seen in other places, which is this notion that Elon Musk foreclosed his ability to conduct due diligence on this company at all. And I will again sit here as I have done prior in this playlist and say that is patently absurd, that the merger agreement contains what are called representations and warranties. It also contains what is called a bring down concept, which will apply those representation and warranties at the time of closing, not merely the time of signing and mandate that they are true at the time of closing, meaning that Twitter has to be promising certain things about itself. And one of those promises are that the SEC filings that it has made are true and complete and don't forget to say something that would otherwise change the understanding of those documents in the eyes of an investor. So Elon Musk has at least theoretically a case. If you followed along with us when we looked at the Twitter lawsuit, I said, hey, they did a pretty good job, a strong job describing someone that was trying to get out of a deal and scrambling for any possible reason to get out of that deal. These are two good law firms representing two well-resourced clients, and they are going at it with very strong documentation. I will tell you as a spoiler alert that this document on Elon Musk's side is also very strong. This is what you expect when you get two of the biggest most well-resourced law firms in the world 
fighting each other over 40 plus billion dollars of American money. So don't be surprised when we get through this document. I say, yep, that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. Also makes sense on Twitter side. And a lot of this is going to live in the facts of what was asked for with respect to information, what exactly a judge believes in terms of the importance of this MDAU number and things that we can't necessarily read the minds of or guess at in closed door rooms that hopefully Discovery will help uncover. That's the state of play here as we proceed through this document. Twitter's complaint, filled with personal attacks against Musk, yeah, it really is, and gaudy rhetoric more directed at a media audience than this court, is nothing more than an attempt to distract from these misrepresentations. Your Honor, Twitter is a lying company that lies, and they've put forth all of this language in their documentation so that they get headlines like the one at Gizmodo that says they obliterate Elon Musk. And as we went through that earlier lawsuit document from Twitter, I pointed out that a number of the provisions seemed written for virtual legality or others that were reporting on the document. Nothing wrong with that necessarily, and it certainly makes it more exciting to read these things, but he's not wrong to suggest that there is a bunch of name calling there that takes away a little bit from the underlying issue in this case. In fact, that has been Twitter's strategy all along, to distract from and obfuscate the truth about its disclosures, first from its investors and then from the Musk parties when they began to discern the truth. Following the adage, trust but verify, the Musk parties negotiated not only for representations and warranties about the truthfulness of Twitter's SEC filings, but also for significant information rights entitling them to access the company's books and records. As we said in this space, that's how the merger agreement works. Yes, they don't do a pre-signing diligence process. That's been pretty well noted, but that doesn't mean that the reps and warranties don't otherwise have to be true at closing. And there certainly is a covenant that talks about getting information. I will bring those sections up again as Mr. Musk talks about them more fulsomely as part of this document. Twitter played a months-long game of hide-and-seek to attempt to run out the clock before the Musk parties could discern a truth about these representations, which they needed to close. First, Twitter was miscounting the number of false and spam accounts. Second, while Twitter has repeatedly touted MDAU as a key metric for revenue growth, MDAU is not as closely tied to revenue as Twitter leads the public to believe. Now, this is an interesting bit of rhetoric here early on in the document because I have to admit, I didn't understand what they were getting at because it's important for the MDAU to be material to the value of the company or else Elon Musk loses. One of the provisions of the merger agreement says, hey, yes, we promise that all these representations and warranties are true, but you only have the right to terminate this deal if their falsity would otherwise create a material adverse effect, if they would actually do something bad to the company. If we get something wrong, if it's a foot fault, if it's something else like that, then you don't really get the right to terminate because we're human beings, you're human beings, and we're not going to get into a fight over things that don't otherwise change the value of the company. So this sounds like, well, if it's not as closely tied to the revenue as we've been led to believe, is it that important? And so one of the things you will see from Elon Musk's team in this document is that they have to establish why it's important to Elon Musk specifically, why it's important to their future plans, and why it's still important in some respects, even if it isn't as important as Twitter touts in their investor documents, because they're trying to simultaneously establish that Twitter is lying to its investors, which is its own problem as a material adverse effect, and also that with these numbers wrong, it shouldn't have been valued at what it was valued at by Mr. Musk. To Musk and many others, eliminating free speech is a cure worse than the disease, and that open discourse is essential to a functioning democracy. 
And that came out of nowhere, right? But so did paragraph five. They're talking about why Elon Musk is a defender of truth, justice, and the American way. They'll do that a couple of times in this document. Musk believes that a key issue for Twitter is the elimination of false and spam accounts and discerning who Twitter's verifiable real users are. Musk believes that by verifying who is real and eliminating false and spam accounts, accounts that bad actors employ to manipulate public discourse or propagate scams on a global scale, Twitter would be able to flourish. Musk's thesis for Twitter was simple. False and spam accounts have an outsized effect on public discourse and are often amplified by Twitter's timeline algorithm, the algorithm that determines what posts users see on their feed. So not only, Your Honor, is this about us making money, we're going to talk about making money a little bit in this document, but this is about freedom. This is about democracy. And if there are false and spam bots that are otherwise controlling Twitter discourse, well, then democracy and freedom are threatened. And I find it funny because it doesn't really become a logic loop that is otherwise filled in this document, but you'll get a bunch of these paragraphs talking about how Elon Musk is just generally a good guy. And that's one of the things you do to a court is you try to establish that your client, your party, your side, they're the good ones, the other side of the bad actors, uh, and try to get that in the mind of the judge. At the same time, Musk believed Twitter was over-reliant on advertising revenue with over 90% of its revenue generated by ads. When he signed the deal, Musk believed he could kill two birds with one stone. By implementing certain changes, such as requiring effective verification of all users, he could eliminate what he thought, based on what Twitter misrepresented, was a less than 5% false or spam account problem. Musk could then better engage the over 220 million MDAU that Twitter represented were real, monetizable users to create greater engagement and subscription revenue. Sure, we care about freedom and democracy, Your Honor, but you're not going to buy that the entire way. So let's talk about making money. And so we're first going to include that this was all based on Twitter's lies. They thought it was a small problem and that they could take that small problem, fix it, and make some money with this platform. This particular paragraph is also a kind of answer to one of Twitter's complaints, which is, hey, look, you knew there was a bot problem this whole time. We've got an email from you talking about a bot problem. We've got tweets from you talking about a bot problem. We've got Twitter and other things talking about a bot problem. How can you now come in and say you are surprised by the level of the bot problem? Now, Twitter has a point there, but it's not a slam dunk silver bullet point because you can think there's a bot problem and still not think it is as high as what Elon Musk is now claiming Twitter has as that problem. And both those statements can be true at the same time. And if Twitter misrepresented it to such a degree that it materially changes the value of the company, well, then Elon Musk probably has a point. Twitter restated three years of its MDAU figures because it had been double counting certain users. We talked about that in this space. Twitter failed to advise the Musk parties that the restatement was coming before they signed the merger document. So that happens a couple of days after the merger agreement gets signed, and it doesn't look great for Twitter. Now, I also think that those changes are relatively immaterial in the grand scope of things. They are small percentages of the claimed MDAU population. But Elon Musk's primary argument, as we will see in this document, is that the fact that they made the disclosure at all means that somebody at Twitter thought it was material to the value of the company because that's all you have to disclose with respect to financial statements and the fact that they use kind of the the 0.9, 0.1, which is uh, portions of a million in this particular case, does suggest that they're trying to show their investors that they have some level of granularity in understanding what the MDAU number actually is and who might be fake or spam or double counted or otherwise. And Elon Musk rejects that notion completely. 
at the meeting that they went to with respect to these things early on in the process, Musk was astonished to learn just how meager Twitter's processes were. Human reviewers, not AI, apply unidentified standards to somehow conclude every quarter for nearly three years that fewer than 5% of Twitter users were false or spam on the basis of a sample of just 100 counts per day. Even worse, Twitter's CEO and CFO were unable to explain both how those 100 accounts per day were selected to ensure a representative sample or what criteria were applied other than a reviewer's gut judgment. Now, this might be a legitimate concern from Elon Musk, but, and we'll talk about this as we go through this document a little bit more, it's not really the place of either the Court of Chancery or Elon Musk to sit here and just say that Twitter's processes are wrong or that they can be improved because, yeah, a buyer often thinks that management or strategies or otherwise are wrong and can be improved. That's part of the reason they're buying a company, generally speaking, is that they view these assets as underutilized and capable of making more money for them in their hands than they do under current management. That doesn't itself kill the ability to make a deal because it's kind of the expectation. So Elon Musk has a tricky little thing he has to do here, which is establish that this is bad, this is unwarranted, and that it's so bad that when they say they were doing things like processing and evaluating the 5% number that they put forth in their investor statements, that that was so off because they didn't have a process at all that it amounted to a lie that then amounts to a breach of the contract and allows him to terminate. That's a tricky bit of this. I don't think Elon Musk has the strongest argument there. Since then, Twitter's disclosures have slowly unraveled, with Twitter frantically closing the gates on information in a disparate bid to prevent the Musk parties from uncovering its fraud. Twitter's delay tactics have been twofold. It has dragged its feet in responding to the Musk party's data requests and has repeatedly provided sanitized, incomplete information that it admits does not answer the Musk party's most basic questions. They gave us too little food and it was bad in any event. What limited information has come to light proves Twitter's disclosures about the number of false or spam accounts are false. They show that in early July, fully one-third of visible accounts may have been false or spam accounts, resulting in a conservative floor of at least twice as many false or spam accounts as the 5% that Twitter discloses. And we have to look at visible accounts here. Accounts that publicly tweet, retweet, or like tweets are quote-unquote visible accounts on Twitter's firehose and make up approximately 30% of the accounts Twitter counts in its MDAU figure. So they're counting, at least according to Elon Musk here, a bunch more accounts that aren't regularly engaging directly with Twitter, what we might consider lurking or otherwise not otherwise made apparent as visible, but can be served ads. Because what do we care about when we're talking about monetizable users? We're talking about who sees advertisements because that's how Twitter makes most of its money right now. So they are taking the data that they have gotten. They haven't gotten enough data, says Elon Musk, to actually evaluate these things. And they're coming up with, it's at least 10% of MDA users that are wrong. And then it would be up to you or the court in this particular case to determine, okay, if we say in our SEC materials that it's less than 5%, we also include language, which is in there that Twitter has stated in their lawsuit and I have verified in their financial statements themselves that we can't really guarantee that number and it could be higher, is 10% high enough to say that it is absolutely a lie on the part of Twitter and it should be allowed to rescind the whole contract or allow the buyers to terminate or whatever direction you end up going as the court. Is 10% to 5% significant enough? It's double, uh, but that would be a question of fact for the actual judge to make a determination on. And nobody nowhere, not me or anybody else you might hear talking about this case, could actually tell you, if we assume that to be true, 
that it goes one way or the other in the eyes of the judge in question. Millions of accounts suspended in any given quarter, including for spam, are nevertheless included in the MDAU calculations of that same quarter. In fact, while Twitter represents that MDAU, a proprietary metric that only Twitter uses and is first among its key metrics and is determinative of long-term financial performance, that is misleading. So again, that's the second part of what we saw above. They're going to claim the MDAU isn't really the number they say it is. Twitter has further disclosed that our MDAU are not comparable to current disclosures from other companies, many of whom share a more expansive metric that includes people who are not seeing ads. And they're kind of using this as a cudgel against Twitter because they're also going to claim later on that Twitter itself's MDAU number includes a lot of people who don't see ads. Twitter's own disclosures to the Musk party show that although Twitter touts having 238 million monetizable daily active users, those users who actually see ads and thus would reasonably be considered monetizable is about 65 million lower than what Twitter represents. And just to backstop Musk here, that is the metric that they tend to tout right at the top end. Here's the second quarter 2022 results kind of press release. Here's our monetizable daily active usage, 237.8 million, up 16.6% compared to quarter two of the prior year, et cetera, et cetera. They base a lot of their numbers and analysis of how they're doing on that particular metric. So Elon Musk isn't wrong there, certainly. Moreover, MDAU is not by itself a useful metric to forecast revenue growth, despite Twitter's public statements to the contrary, because while MDAU has grown, Twitter relies on advertising revenue and users that see zero or almost zero ads account for almost all of the growth in MDAU. Thus, many users who are counted as monetizable do not bear on Twitter's long-term financial success as Twitter represents. In fact, the majority of ads are served to less than 16 million users, a mere fraction of the 238 million MDAU figure that Twitter misleadingly touts to the market. And here's where things get dicey. So one of the things we will see argued is that Twitter's MDAU usage is effectively just wrong. Uh, but in general, Twitter's allowed to be wrong. Twitter's allowed to use a metric uh, that maybe isn't the most precise as long as it's being consistent in what it puts forth to the public and investors can decide whether they're getting good enough information from Twitter on those counts. So a lot of this is kind of smoke and mirrors from Elon Musk, plate spinning, however you want to define this. Uh, not that they're necessarily inaccurate, that Twitter couldn't do it better, but Twitter isn't obligated to do it perfectly. And the line between those two things is potentially a question for the court, but I wouldn't want to try to be advancing this particular argument by Elon Musk, even though what he is doing in this countersuit is putting forth all the garbage, right? This is all the dirty laundry that Twitter doesn't want you to see, that almost all of its advertising is going to only 16 million users. This is all of big time interest to the folks that buy ads on the service. The Musk party's investigation has determined that contrary to what Twitter leads investors to believe, MDAU's relationship with financial performance is much more indirect and nuanced. While other social media platforms provide investors with markers of daily engagement beyond MDAU, Twitter continues to push MDAU as the best way to measure performance. In 2020, Twitter based its executives' cash bonus pool on revenue, operating income, and adjusted EBITDA, which is an accounting concept for how much money you're bringing in. After Twitter missed those targets in 2020 and only 32% of the cash bonus pool was funded, Twitter determined that MDAU, a highly manipulable number, 
says the aside in this legal document, should be considered in determining whether executives receive these bonuses. Following that change in 2021, surprise, says Elon Musk, 100% of this executive bonus pool was funded. So here, between the lines, he's ascribing malice, if not outright fraud to Twitter, saying you invented this MDAU concept, which you can manipulate, which doesn't actually relate to your revenue or your real growth in order to make sure that your executives got 100% of their bonus pool. It's getting, it's getting frosty out there in these legal documents, folks. The Musk Party's preliminary analysis shed light as to why Twitter has stonewalled. Twitter did not want the Musk Party's or the market to discover that Twitter has been misleading investors regarding this key metric. These obfuscations and misrepresentations are not Twitter's only sins. You don't see sins used a lot in a lawsuit document. Maybe we should see it more. Since the merger agreement was signed, Twitter has also made significant changes to its business without obtaining the consent required by the merger agreement. We've seen these referenced before, but it's a hiring freeze. It's people leaving the company, etc. We will come back to it, I promise. On July 8th, 2022, the Musk parties terminated the merger agreement, purportedly. Twitter disputes this, says they don't have the right. While Twitter asks the court to force the Musk parties to close over Twitter's misrepresentations and contractual breaches, the Musk parties seek relief from the grave inequity of such result. Accordingly, the Musk parties bring their counterclaims for breach of contract and rescission on the basis of Twitter's fraud. So the overall argument here, that's just the introduction, if you can believe it or not, is that Twitter lied about its MDAU, lied in the financial statements that it gave. We'll also see other things kind of added on to this. And that because of those lies, the contract never existed, that we never had a meeting of the minds as to what this document was actually supposed to be selling. Twitter was never as it was presented of being. And so Elon Musk doesn't owe $44 billion to Twitter or Twitter's stockholders. That's the overall premise of what's happening here. Twitter obviously argues that strenuously. It's not impossible for the Court of Chancery in Delaware to order Elon Musk to buy this company. Uh, in fact, it's more likely than some other specific performances you might have heard of in other contexts, but it's hard to actually have a court say, yes, you have to spend 40 plus billion dollars to buy this company that you don't want to buy. So we're getting into the weeds here, but it's going to be a fight. I still say the most likely outcome of all of this is to settle and not actually go forward with the Court of Chancery. But these are emotional documents. These are absolutely laden uh, with emotion and angst and antagonism between these two sides. Now, who are the parties? Who is Elon Musk? Well, Tesla has revolutionized electric cars and helped accelerate the world's move to sustainable energy, preventing tens of millions of metric tons of carbon from entering the atmosphere. Musk also founded and leads SpaceX, which works with NASA and the International Space Station to both launch satellites into orbit and to send astronauts into space. Indeed, when Russia disrupted internet service in the Ukraine during its invasion of that country, Ukrainian officials reached out to Musk on Twitter and worked to bring Starlink to Ukraine, providing crucial internet access in under 11 hours. Or he's just a resident of Texas. That's also the countersign party to this merger agreement. But hey, you can put all this in if you want. Uh, let's see if he's that nice to Twitter. Uh, nope. Twitter operates a microblogging social network on which users write and share short messages or tweets. Fair enough. Factual allegations. So Twitter's business. Twitter is free to use for most users and generates the vast majority of its revenue through advertising. For example, for the fiscal year ending December 31st, 2021, Twitter reported revenue of just over $5 billion. Of that, $4.5 billion was generated through advertising services. And a similarly large number, 3.7 and 3.2, is for 2020. Twitter's users 
the site's MDAU count to induce investors to purchase Twitter securities, but that wasn't always the case. Until late 2018, so about four years ago, Twitter told investors that its key metric was MAU, uh, monthly active users, a widely accepted metric in the social media industry. But after three straight quarters of decreasing MAUs, Twitter developed a new proprietary key metric, MDAU, that conveniently resulted in 10 straight quarters of growth. So here the accusations of fraud or quasi-fraud are pretty strong. In its disclosure replacing MAU with MDAU, Twitter noted that we believe that MDAU and its related growth are the best ways to measure our success against our objectives and to show the size of our audience and engagement going forward. So we will discontinue disclosing MAU after the first quarter of 2019, clearly implying that MDAU predicted future revenue better than MAU. Why else would you change it? Elon Musk isn't necessarily wrong there, and he's got a bunch of quotes saying Twitter really likes this stat. Twitter defines MDAU as people, organizations, or other accounts who logged in or were otherwise authenticated and accessed Twitter on any given day through twitter.com, Twitter applications that are able to show ads, or paid Twitter products, including subscriptions. The average MDAU figure was 217 million for the fourth quarter of 2021, 229 million for the first quarter of 2022, and 238 million for the second quarter of 2022. And we just saw that uh, number in the document that we looked at. Twitter represents that MDAU reflects how many Twitter users access the site on a daily basis, reflects the population that is being exposed to advertisements, is crucial to understanding Twitter's total audience for advertisers, and thus is the central metric to understand in estimating future revenue growth. And they highlight that this is all shown in their financial statements. Musk's relationship with Twitter? He likes it, folks. He really likes it. Despite his growing concerns with the company's direction, he still believed in Twitter as a product, one that provided a necessary public good while still offering significant untapped opportunity for monetization. He thus invested in the company in early 2022 by buying common stock in the market. Much to everybody's surprise, check out the playlist. In late March of 2022, Dorsey and other members of Twitter's board approached Musk to ask him to join the board, but Musk was hesitant at first. They have a bunch of conversations. For example, on April 8th, Musk sent Agrawal an example of a scam tweet from a spam account stating, I am so sick of stuff like this. Agrawal replied, acknowledging we should be catching this, which I'm only including in this summary because it comes back later uh, in a fairly unfair fashion, I would say. Musk eventually realized that Twitter's current management was not up to the task of fixing Twitter as it needed to be fixed. He determined that to do the job right, he would need more than a single board seat. Musk thus rejected Twitter's offer to join the board on April 9th, 2022, and instead notified Agrawal of his intent to submit an acquisition offer. Musk's offer price of 54.20 was based on a financial model prepared by his bankers at Morgan Stanley, which relied in significant part on Twitter's representations that MDAU was the best way to measure Twitter's success. And only a small group comprising less than 5% of MDAU were non-monetizable false or spam accounts. So this is important, right? As I said, Musk's primary goal in this document is to establish at least plausibly why an error with the MDAU number would change what he has otherwise offered for the company or what the underlying value of the company is. It is material. It is significant. It isn't immaterial or insignificant. And so one of the things he's trying to do now is saying, look, we based our financial projections on this number. And so how can we say now that if it is wrong, it's immaterial to the deal and I just have to buy the company anyway. Musk's thesis for Twitter is based on two principal concepts. First, 
He believes that Twitter's approach to combating false or spam accounts is flawed. Instead of suspending or banning accounts that violate Twitter's rules, which keeps the company a step behind spammers and stifles the open exchange of ideas, Twitter should instead require users to be effectively authenticated at the front end. So he would change it from kind of an opt-out to an opt-in, and you have to authenticate yourself at the start of using Twitter. Who knows whether that would be better or not? He further believes that solving Twitter's false or spam account problem through effective authentication would make the platform more attractive to use, driving further engagement by existing users and attracting new active users and ultimately more potential avenues for making money. Like any reasonable public company investor, Musk relied on Twitter's SEC filings for the truth. Musk also believes that Twitter's algorithm is fundamentally flawed in a way that compounds the false or spam account problem. Here, if you don't like that Twitter just occasionally takes your usage of the platform and changes it from accounts you actually follow to accounts that you don't follow, but the Twitter recommends, is Elon Musk arguing that point in a court of law with 40 plus billion dollars on the line. Twitter allows a user's feed to sort others' posts by chronology, but the default setting is for the algorithm to provide a generated list of home tweets. Twitter notes that home serves tweets from accounts on topics you follow as well as recommended tweets. Thus, if a user frequently interacts with tweets regarding a certain topic, Twitter will push more tweets about that topic onto one's feed, regardless of whether the user follows that account. The home tweets algorithm boosts tweets with high engagement, regardless of whether they are generated by real humans or false or spam accounts. This results in Russian propaganda accounts like the now banned at 10 underscore GOP account going viral by posting misinformation. Musk has previously spoken out about the problems with this algorithm and how it amplifies false or spam accounts. So Elon Musk taking his Twitter arguments directly to the Delaware Court of Chancery. And hey, I think a lot of us can agree that we would rather have Twitter just tell us who we actually follow and update us on the timeline in that fashion. And a lot of us select that when we're given the option to do so. Second, Musk believes that Twitter's ad-based revenue model is dated. Prior to the merger agreement, Musk believed he could unlock Twitter's true potential by shifting away from an advertising-only model. In quarter two, 2022, advertising made up over 90% of Twitter's revenue to other forms of revenue, like a hybrid subscription-based model for verified users and enabling payments and creator monetization tools. What what does that look like? We don't know, uh, but he's planning on monetizing the platform somehow more. Because these additional business models require legitimate users, the Musk parties calculated their purchase price with reference to Twitter's MDAU figures. This thesis makes his investment in Twitter distinctly vulnerable to any misstatements about how many MDAU were actually real, monetizable users. While he believed there would be some pain in shedding user accounts through removing false or spam accounts and requiring verification, he believed that in the long run, this would attract more users and provide more diverse revenue streams for the company. This again is kind of a quasi answer to Twitter again saying, you know, there are bot problems. You established that you thought the only way to fix those bot problems was taking over the company. We have text messages. We have tweets on that score. And this is Elon Musk's team trying to respond to that in advance a little bit. Then we get into the merger. On April 25th, 2022, the Musk parties entered into the agreement to purchase Twitter. Musk announced his intent to defeat the bots that plagued the platform, which Twitter has held against him. The acquisition, if completed, would be funded with two financing streams. First, Musk, along with co-investors, would provide equity funding of $33.5 billion. Second, a syndicate of banks led by Morgan Stanley would provide debt financing of $13 billion under a debt commitment letter that goes through April 25th, 2023. They also point out that this did change in the process. Twitter also 
held this against him in their lawsuit, saying that he was trying to get around a reduction in the value of Tesla stock and margin loan commitments. That margin loan went away and they've accused Elon Musk of slow playing the financing in order to get out of the deal as well. He denies all of that, as you would expect, uh, in both this countersuit and the answer document that we'll probably be taking a look at in the next video. But at the end of the day, he says he's committed to this amount of money and that he could pay for the deal if it came to it. Then we get to the conditions to closing. And if you've seen these items before, it's because we've discussed them in this space before. The conditions to closing the merger appear in Article 7 of the merger agreement. Section 7.2b requires that all representations and warranties be true and correct as of the closing date and does not require buyers to close if a representation is false and the result is a material adverse effect. We've taken a look at this, right? This is the section that's being referred to here. Each of the representations and the warranties contained in this agreement without giving effect to any materiality qualifications shall be true and correct as of the closing date, right? And if they aren't, you don't have to close. And that is what Elon Musk is claiming. Secondly, a company material adverse effect in this particular circumstance is any change that would reasonably be expected to result in a material adverse effect on the business financial condition or results of operations of the company. And section 7.2 requires that Twitter shall have performed or complied in all material respects with its obligations under this agreement. And again, we've talked about this section before, but suffice it to say, when you are looking on Twitter or social media or elsewise, and you hear somebody say, he waived all due diligence, that is factually incorrect. That there is this bring down concept, the reps and warranties, the promises that Twitter made about itself. They have to be true as of the closing date in order for Elon Musk to be obligated to purchase the company. And the company has to have done what it said it was going to do under the merger agreement in order for Elon Musk to have to purchase the company. All of these provisions are normal, by the way, and they aren't terribly controversial. Twitter did, and I think this was a wrongheaded move on their part in their lawsuit, advance the concept that Elon Musk had somehow foreclosed the possibility of evaluating things at the business level. That is flatly not true. And it gives Elon Musk and his team the strongest legs to stand on because it's patently obvious that in this agreement, he does have the right to seek information and to make sure that the promises that Twitter made about itself, including its SEC filings, are accurate as of the closing when the money would change hands. Now we talk about termination where he says, following a 30-day cure period commencing upon notice of a covenant breach or the inaccuracy of a representation, the Musk parties may terminate the merger agreement due to a material covenant breach or those untrue reps or warranties, which we also see here. The termination right, if the company shall have breached or failed to perform and it can't be otherwise cured or there's been 30 days passage, then we can terminate. Now, Elon Musk and his team leave this particular provision out of the document. Twitter has relied upon it Provided, however, that Elon Musk shall not have the right to terminate if Elon Musk or his team are otherwise themselves in material breach of any of their promises, reps, warranties, covenants, or agreements in the document. And so what Twitter has done is they have said when Elon Musk went to terminate the agreement under this provision, he was also in breach. They said he was in breach on financing reps and covenants. He was in breach on publicity reps. Uh, and covenants. And so since he was in breach, he couldn't actively uh, terminate the agreement, which means any attempt to terminate the agreement triggered their ability to go and argue for, in this case, specific performance that he'd be forced to buy the company. Or if they went another direction, according to Twitter, 
they could ask for the billion dollars that he guaranteed them if this all goes south. So there's a fight there. And so one of the preliminary conversations that a judge has to have in this particular case is, was Elon Musk, in fact, in breach? Uh, because if he was, it would appear by the language of the section in the merger agreement that he can't actually terminate the document. I don't know exactly what happens between the parties in that circumstance where they're both in breach. I guess they'd have to get over it and talk amongst themselves. Uh, but that'll be a pertinent question for the court to determine as part of this particular issue. He further says in this document that the parties agreed that the termination fee, that billion dollars, would be the sole and exclusive remedy for damages resulting from a failure to close. Here, I actually think this is wrong. This is an actual lie. This is an inaccuracy at bare minimum. If we look at the document in the merger agreement, we get a line that says, notwithstanding anything here into the contrary, including the availability of the parent termination fee or other damages, it is hereby acknowledged and agreed that the company, that's Twitter, shall be entitled to specific performance or other equitable remedy to enforce Elon Musk's obligations to actually go through with the financing, the purchase of the company itself. So this sentence here, that it's the sole and exclusive remedy for damages resulting from failure to close, I don't think that's accurate based on the language that's actually in the merger agreement. And you never like to put to the court something that is false, uh, right? And I think that that is self-evidently false based on the language of the merger agreement itself. Then we get to Twitter's covenants. They will operate the business in the ordinary course. We talked about that. And that the signed merger agreement contains neither a carve out to the ordinary course covenant nor any other express provision authorizing Twitter to make material personnel and compensation changes without consent. Twitter had argued that they had gotten certain concessions on the ordinary course provision. And in fact, they did, but they didn't get any provision that just allows them to willy-nilly do whatever they like, such as terminate 30% of a given uh, line within their company. And that's where Elon Musk says, look, I get consent on anything that you would do to change the company. And again, this kind of provision is normal. When you sign a merger agreement and you're going to buy the company, but for the time being between the signing and the closing, it's still run by the present owners, you get a provision that says you're not going to do anything to scuttle the company that I've otherwise purchased, or else I can walk away because the company is no longer of the value that I ascribe to it when we signed that deal. So if Twitter puts in a hiring freeze, if Twitter does these various other things that Elon Musk finds problematic, it's possible that they're in breach of that covenant that would again give him the right to terminate, provided per the terms of the contract, Elon Musk isn't in breach himself. The merger agreement also contains an information covenant requiring Twitter to furnish promptly all information for any reasonable business purpose related to the consummation of the transaction. We saw that here. This is section 6.4. We're not going to go over it in great detail again. But the fight here is that Twitter says, hey, you asking us about our fire hose and the MDAU and everything else is not a reasonable business purpose related to the consummation of the transaction. Twitter argues it's the opposite. Twitter argues it's Elon Musk trying to find a way out of the transaction and reasonable minds can differ there. This is why the email exchanges are going to matter. This is why the notes at a board meeting are going to matter. This is why discovery is going to matter because Elon Musk puts forth, again, through well-resourced legal counsel, an argument that he desperately needed that information to evaluate whether Twitter was lying to him about what their company actually was. And as premised in this document, you can see the world through Elon Musk's eyes and say, yeah, if that is as described, Twitter might well have a problem here, even though when we looked at Twitter's lawsuit, we said, hey, if the world is as Twitter describes, Elon Musk might have a problem here. This is fundamentally a very well put together case on either side that's going to come down to the facts and circumstances of what was actually happening 
with these data requests. Similarly, section 6.10 says that that information will be provided in respect of a financing. We've talked about that before. And Twitter's reps and warranties in general. Right here is where Elon Musk is going to try to establish that they're lying. For their reps and warranties, believing that the due diligence process can be costly and inefficient, this is before signing the agreement, the Musk parties instead focused on bargaining for contractual representations that the information they relied upon in deciding to acquire Twitter is accurate. So that's legalese, right? But what that sentence says is, look, you know your company better than we ever will without spending months and months of legal time and resources and other accounting and financial things to go figure out what's going on. So I'm going to ask for the most important promises that I can think of, and you're going to promise that they are true. And as we go through that process, I'll be able to check those things between signing and closing. But otherwise, that's how we're going to organize this particular deal. If these representations cannot be brought down at closing, if they aren't true as of closing, then they excuse a party from closing if the failure to bring such representations down is material, would result in an adverse effect for the company. So that's how Elon Musk organized this contract. You can go back in the playlist here and see that's exactly how I describe how this document works. Elon Musk is correct here. Twitter is wrong. And unfortunately, a lot of the reports on how this is operating are wrong as well. That doesn't make these arguments that Elon Musk is going to advance winners, but it does mean that there is a universe of arguments that could be made, were they true, that could potentially win the case on these grounds. That Twitter actually does have promises that it has made that have to be true as of closing, or Elon Musk doesn't have to close. First, we get the SEC filings rep. The Musk party secured a representation from Twitter that it's SEC filings, and thus its user-based disclosures and identification of MDAU as a key metric are accurate. The Musk parties relied on this representation and Twitter's SEC disclosures to sign the deal in the first place. Now, one of the arguments advanced by Twitter is, hey, if you care so much about MDAU, you could have had a rep that said our MDAU stuff is true. And I tend to agree with that argument. If this was as important as Elon Musk and his team is putting forth in these legal documents, they knew how to draw up a representation that said your MDAU is not materially above 5% or other things that otherwise relate to MDAU. They didn't. That said, Still, the SEC filings include references to those MDAU numbers, and Elon Musk and his team are not wrong to suggest that if there is a material inaccuracy in those documents, they do appear to be covered by the provisions that they are talking about, right? 4.6 says none of the company SEC documents at the time they were filed contain an untrue statement of a material fact or omitted to state any other fact that would prevent the statements therein from being deemed misleading and the same for proxies otherwise sent to the shareholders. So that's all encompassing of everything that goes into the company's financials and different sophisticated parties can prefer these kind of umbrella concepts over belt and suspenders or specific reps and warranties. That doesn't make them wrong to do so, even though if this were that important, I probably would have advised to include an MDAU rep. And I don't think Twitter is exactly wrong in advancing that argument. Importantly, says the Elon Musk document, this representation encompasses Twitter's disclosures regarding its MDAU. In substance, this representation means that Twitter's representations in its SEC filings regarding MDAU and false accounts must be true to comply with the merger agreement. And then there's a list of things that they have said in their financials. Now, they do note that Twitter has said in making the determination of our MDAU, we applied significant judgment. So our estimation of false or spam accounts may not accurately represent the actual number of such accounts and the actual number of false or spam accounts could be higher than we have estimated. And Twitter has kind of used that as a silver bullet. Uh, and it's useful for them, there is no question. But when we're talking about SEC documents, 
you can't just put in a provision that says, hey, this might be wildly inaccurate. This could be way, way, way wrong and expect that you're going to get full protection and not have SEC issues or shareholder issues in that regard. If you put forth, we think it's less than 5%. There should be a reason why you think it's less than 5%. And if it turns out to be a huge number above that, is 10% that number? I don't know. Then you can get in trouble even with this kind of disclaimer. Hey, even though we've asked you to rely on this number and we say it's super, super important to the way we conduct our business, we could be completely wrong about it. That generally doesn't work. The SEC can look through that. As we said, just analyzing the SEC rep in the merger agreement itself. If you omit to state a material fact that makes what you have said misleading, you can get into trouble. It's a broad obligation to truthfulness in these documents. You have a lot of references to MDAU. We're going to skip most of them. You also have it brought down to the definitive proxy disclosure. So that brings in that other section uh, we were talking about. And then there are other representations uh, that concern Elon Musk here. Uh, Section 4.9 says the business in the company and subsidiaries has been conducted in the ordinary course and that there's been no material adverse uh, effect on that company. There are certain carve outs from that definition, but there is no carve out applicable to an MAE resulting from the impact of the market's discovery that Twitter's MDAU calculations are materially misleading. And that's interesting in and of itself. Right. We talk about the fact that maybe it's fraud. Maybe there's an SEC investigation. That's an MAE. And that's kind of what Elon Musk is leaning on here. They make a somewhat broader argument that the mere fact that it is announced to the world that the MDAU numbers are off might themselves cause a material adverse effect. The most interesting point of which is that it's Elon Musk broadcasting the issues with the MDAU. Right. And so you've got kind of an unclean hands. Can they actually get out of a deal by going through and then putting in a lawsuit, putting in a letter, making an SEC filing, doing these various things that they have done, that that number is super off. And so that in and of itself makes a material adverse effect by our investigation and then publicizing our findings on that score. I have my doubts that a Delaware court is going to love that approach to a scenario like this, but it is novel. Additionally, in Section 411, and this raised my eyebrows when I saw it the first time, there is no suit, action, or proceeding pending or to the knowledge of the company threatened in writing or any investigation by any governmental authority involving the company or any of its subsidiaries. So the representation warranty that has to be true as of the time of closing is that there isn't a lawsuit or investigation happening. What could Elon Musk be referring to here? It isn't anything that's been brought up in the letters before this document. Based on Twitter's misrepresentations that MDAU is the best way to measure Twitter's success, or just representations in this context, Musk relied upon Twitter's calculation of the MDAU figure in making his decision to purchase the company. There's that reliance interest we talked about before. To the extent that Twitter includes within MDAU accounts that are only barely engaged in the platform at all, and yet calls all of these accounts monetizable, that too is misleading. Again, using the terminology that might be a problem for the SEC. Thus, including accounts in the MDAU account that are not actually monetizable, whether because they are spam accounts, false accounts, insufficiently engaged with the platform to generate revenues, or non-monetizable for any other reason, paints a misleading picture to investors. Now, again here, Elon Musk and his team seems to be stealing at least a partial rhetorical base. So you can see in the paragraph above the line we just read that one of the things he is talking about is with respect to folks that aren't sufficiently engaged with the platform, right? For instance, if an account does not visit Twitter long enough to see any advertising and does not use the platform enough to indicate the user would ever verify, let alone purchase a subscription, that account would not be monetizable. This is that stolen base, right? They don't have a subscription. They don't have an authentication verification concept, the, the kind that Elon Musk wants to introduce to the platform. So he's saying here, that people that aren't on Twitter enough 
Twitter can count them. Twitter does count them, but they aren't significant enough for his calculation. That's bringing a new kind of concept to their calculation, saying Twitter is wrong and that they can walk away because it doesn't meet their standards. But that's not quite right, right? Twitter has to make sure that they are following SEC rules. They have to make sure that they are transparent and open and all these various things with their filings. They don't have to have calculated everything in exactly the way Elon Musk would have if he were sitting in their boardroom. And so Elon Musk coming in here and saying, that's not the way I would count it. I don't find that to be as useful as I would have hoped. Isn't quite falsehood, isn't quite falsity. And so they're trying to steal that rhetorical base with things like not enough engagement to say those numbers shouldn't count as monetizable. And I don't think it works in this context. So think of that as we go over some more of these numbers, because they're going to try to establish that Twitter's number is way, 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 way different from what they've otherwise said. Just three days after the Musk party signed the agreement, Twitter restated its MDAU figures by approximately 1.4 to 1.9 million per quarter. By restating its financials, Twitter effectively admitted that changes in MDAU of at least this magnitude are material and portrayed its estimates as precise. I don't think that's actually in fact the case uh, because you can just have a kind of overzealous legal compliance guy that says, let's make sure those go out there uh, in the interest of making sure we don't foot fault on any of these SEC requirements. That's not really an admittance that these statements are material, but Elon Musk wants to use it that way. By April 28th, 2022, Twitter was almost a month into the second quarter, which ultimately proved to be disastrous. Twitter's quarter two 2022 results disclosed a 60% EBITDA miss, that is big, and a 10% revenue miss with revenue lower than quarter two 2021. Contrary to Twitter's narrative, the May 6, 2022 meeting was not requested by Musk. Did any market concerns? They said it was because Tesla was losing value. Rather, it was a pre-scheduled introductory meeting in order to verify Twitter's representations and warranties in light of that restatement for the post-closing transition and to aid in securing deal financing. During that meeting, Musk was struck by Twitter executives' inability to answer simple questions about its foundational MDAU metric. He was also concerned about just how meager Twitter's process was for counting the number of false or spam accounts, particularly in light of Twitter's use of separate processes for removing false or spam accounts, which rely on more advanced methods. So they use a different method for counting and for removing, and that bugged him. Instead, Twitter's process was shockingly thin. Human reviewers randomly sampled 100 accounts per day and applied unidentified subjective standards. As discussed above, Twitter executives, including CFO Ned Siegel, later revealed that they knew their accounts that human reviewers judged to be real were later found by Twitter itself to be false or spam. And yet they made the conscious decision not to update MDAU counts to exclude accounts suspended within the same quarter before publishing quarterly figures. Now, again, you've got a little bit of sleight of hand here because what this appears to say is that if an account was suspended, they aren't immediately removed for MDAU because they don't know whether or not that suspension was in respect of spam or false content. And so that appears to be what Twitter is doing. You don't have to love that uh, from Twitter, but it's not as obviously wrong as Elon Musk suggests here. Then you get a whole description of the information setup. Uh, and this is effectively the reverse of what Twitter says happened, right? Twitter says Elon Musk asks for more and weirder information. We try to get it from him and he asks for weirder information and we try to get that to him and he asks for weirder information. Elon Musk instead here says, they don't get me anything that I want. Beginning on May 9th, the Musk parties promptly exercised their information rights under the merger agreement to request the information to, among other things, verify Twitter's representations and warranties, which were a condition to closing, plan for the post-closing transition, aid in securing deal financing, and the Musk parties made it crystal clear what they were seeking, again, according to Elon Musk. 
They wanted to understand how Twitter calculated its MDAU and spam figures, and they wanted the data necessary to test Twitter's calculations. Rather than opening its doors to work cooperatively with its presumptive owner, Twitter seized upon the Musk party's ignorance of Twitter's internal terminology and forced them to embark on a game of battleship, taking blind guesses as to what data sets would be sufficient with little to no guidance from Twitter. So here the accusation is they went dark and they required the Elon parties to use exactly the right magic language that they otherwise established internally to actually request what it is that they needed, right? You wouldn't ordinarily know the term firehose, for instance, unless you had some reason to believe it was important to asking for what you wanted to see. And I like the metaphor of battleship here. I can't tell you whether this is an accurate description of events. Twitter argues against it uh, almost entirely. These are diametrically opposed visions of what the world was when these documents and these conversations uh, were being passed around. However, the document provided contained no explanation of how the sample population is selected, how human reviewers are selected, the reviewers' incentives, the directions and feedbacks reviewers receive, how many factors must be present for an account to be determined to be false or spam account, how the process was developed, how the process is tested, which accounts Twitter counts in MDAU and why, how often Twitter overrides its reviewers' determinations, or why the process does not leverage other automated technology that Twitter already uses to delete its spam accounts. Uh, and I read that list quickly because it's just trying to establish that Elon Musk is unhappy with what information he is actually receiving. Twitter says he's not entitled to more information in their own lawsuit. And I think chances are the reality is somewhere in between. Elon Musk has the right to verify that their SEC statements are accurate, especially when he has reason to believe that they are not. Twitter has reason to be concerned with the level of information that he is requesting and potentially uh, to defend against poor usage of it. Even in the information provision, they actually had the right to not disclose information if they felt it would cause competitive harm to them if the deal is not consummated, which is a very broad kind of protective right that might ultimately win Twitter the case here if it came down to whether or not they provided information and they could say, hey, look, we thought if this deal doesn't go through that that's really sensitive stuff. And so we didn't provide it to Elon Musk. And that's what the parties negotiated for in their provision. But that's really what the fight is about. By May 23rd, there could be no doubt that Musk sought information to not only understand how Twitter arrived at the 5% figure, but also to verify Twitter's key metric independently. Uh, and then there's all sorts of issues. First, Elon Musk tries to establish that, hey, they were responding to everything else. They got us leases within a few days, and they got us stupid things within a few days. Rather than responding to the Musk party's most pressing concerns, Twitter populated the data room with frivolous materials, such as a copy of its agreement with the Golden State Warriors for courtside basketball tickets and VIP parking. <clears throat> Who doesn't want that, right? Who doesn't want that? Uh, they talk about collecting Twitter's enterprise firehose, what data sets they wanted. Twitter blames miscommunication for its unsatisfactory responses throughout the process. They ask at some point Elon Musk to sign a quote unquote master license agreement for that data that apparently would supersede Musk's obligations under the merger agreement. We don't get the rest of that story, but one can presume that Elon Musk refused to sign that. And again, I'd say he's probably in the right there in terms of the confidentiality concept should be protected in the merger agreement itself. Uh, but these requests, he says of Twitter, were pretext. They are liars, your honor. The Musk parties had previously offered to alleviate concerns about privacy through mechanisms such as third-party review. We offered to put them through a different representative that would sign up to the confidentiality that they required, and they refused to do even that. So on June 6, 2022, with the closing date bearing down and time running out to perform a proper analysis, 
The Musk parties put Twitter on notice that it was in breach of the merger agreement by continuing to withhold properly requested information. Now, the concept that their withholding of information would be a breach does appear in the letter that they filed with the SEC. I have, in prior videos in this series, commented on the fact that I'm not sure it's technically a notice of breach. Ordinarily, with a deal of this size, with this much on the line, you would do a formal notice of breach. We consider this to be a breach, and here is how you have to fix it. You have 30 days. They don't do that. They instead just say, you're not complying with our information requests, and we consider you to be in breach. At the same time, they're asking for different things every day, and Twitter is responding with different things every day. So I think it's very hard to actually characterize that as either Elon Musk or Twitter necessarily, quote unquote, playing fair with that breach concept. And one option for the court here would be to say, uh, you guys are just messing around. Uh, give the information, ask for the information. If you want to actually declare a breach, give an official notice of breach, and then come back to me when things are more uh, settled and better handled between you two parties. Because as it stands, Elon Musk says, I gave notice of breach. Don't think that you necessarily did. Twitter says they've complied with the information request. Don't think that you necessarily did. And should the court step in and make somebody spend $45 billion when Twitter maybe doesn't have clean hands itself? Twitter did not provide the true fire hose upon Elon Musk's request, says his team. Instead, and this is pretty damning if true, a Twitter engineering team with no day-to-day responsibility for the fire hose or related tools and interfaces created a different partial data set and misleadingly named that data set Twitter Firehose Internal. Twitter's engineers configured that mislabeled data set to make machine analysis largely unusable and to give Twitter a backdoor into tracking the Musk party's analysis. The allegation here is that Twitter created a fake version of this Firehose concept gave it to Elon Musk primarily to prevent him from getting the information that he sought and to track what he was looking at. And that's not a great look for Twitter if this is all true. Twitter proposed subsequent meetings with Musk to discuss its business, but at the same time, Twitter was refusing to provide information the Musk parties had properly requested under the merger agreement. Musk saw these meetings for what they were, distractions from the important requests his team was making about data. Musk did not see the use in further meetings because until Twitter could provide data verifying its representations, there was nothing productive to discuss. This is effectively a quasi answer to Twitter saying, look, he wasn't even coming to the meetings that he would have gotten answers to his questions at. And Elon Musk is saying, no, no, I wanted the data. They didn't get me the data. There's no point in having a meeting with executives on these things. And if Elon Musk's requests are legitimate, if they would have gotten him to a place where he would have understood, and if the court determines that he should have gotten that opportunity, then I think he probably has the right of that argument as well. Twitter responded on June 20th, 2022, once again, pretending to have misunderstood what the Musk parties had been requesting for over six weeks. While Twitter was happy to tell the Musk parties the information it was willing to provide was insufficient to allow the Musk parties to answer the overarching question it had posed since early May, how do you come up with 5%, Twitter never offered or provided information it knew would allow the Musk parties to answer that question. So the Musk parties became even more specific. On June 29th, the Musk parties again wrote to Twitter asking for more information. This time, the Musk parties provided a detailed list of MDAU-related requests to prevent any further delay or obfuscation. Now, Elon Musk frames this as being more specific, narrowing it, making it easier for Twitter to comply with. But it has to be noted that this big long list, which I'm not going to read out in Micro Machines voice or otherwise, is distinct and different from his prior information requests, which I would argue, if I were on the Twitter side, restarts that information concept, right? 
We're trying to get you information. You keep asking for different information. You can't hold that as a breach against us for this 30-day window. It restarts every time you ask for that new and different information. But Elon Musk doesn't agree. By this point, the only conclusion the Musk parties could draw from Twitter's obfuscation and delay was that Twitter knew it had something to hide. Shockingly, on the July 1st, 2022 call, Twitter CFO Ned Siegel revealed that Twitter knowingly includes a significant number of accounts that it has already suspended for being false or spam as of the end of the quarter. In sum, despite numerous requests, Twitter still has not provided, among other items, information related to Twitter's process for suspending and removing spam accounts from MDAU, including the global daily MDAU population, information related to Twitter's identification of spam accounts, including the outputs of the sampling process, board materials relating to Twitter's MDAU metric, and information necessary to understand Twitter's current and future financial condition. They haven't given us this information, Your Honor, and so we should be allowed to find them in breach of their information provision requirements. The information Twitter provided evidences numerous false and misleading representations in Twitter's SEC filings. Twitter's misrepresentations include understating the extent to which MDAU and revenues were impacted by false or spam accounts, overstating the extent to which MDAU and its growth was the key proxy for and contributing to increased ad engagement, and overstating MDAU by double counting users with multiple accounts. Now, as I said above at the top of this document, I know it was like 50 pages ago, but hang with me. These kind of sound like they're opposite to each other. They understate the extent to which MDAU and revenues are impacted by the bad people, but they overstate the extent to which MDAU actually talks about how Twitter is growing. So that sounds a little bit opposite, but we will see that the Musk team does a pretty good spin on this by saying essentially that on these latter two points, it's that the advertisers, when they find out that the MDAU doesn't matter, that they'll be upset in that respect. So. Twitter's 10K represents that in the fourth quarter of 2021, it has 217 million MDAU, which represents an increase of 13% from the three months ended December 31st, 2020. So it's a 13% increase at that point in time. They also disclose that they have a $1.57 billion in revenue, which is an increase of 22% year over year. So not quite an exact match, but something that shows that the MDAU is probably pertinent in some respects. But... Elon Musk instead advances that Twitter failed to disclose that false or spam accounts represent more than 5%. They failed to disclose that false and spam accounts comprised a comparatively larger portion of the MDAU that generates ad revenue, more on that in a second, and that Twitter misrepresented key steps in its process for counting fraud and spam accounts. And they expound on that below. So Twitter failed to disclose that it's more than 5%. Twitter has not provided any data regarding the approximately 70% of MDAU that are invisible in the firehose. But we have some preliminary findings. And these preliminary findings, says Elon Musk, indicate a floor for the prevalence of false and spam accounts among Twitter's MDAU of 10%, rendering that 5% number materially misleading. Now that's a legal conclusion. Only the court can really come up with whether or not that's true. What do you think? Doubling of a percentage like this one that does appear to be at least as presented by Twitter material to its overall health seems like it could be a materially misleading statement, but I know that reasonable minds can differ on this. Uh, And so I would ask what you think and leave a comment for your thoughts. Twitter also fails to disclose that false or spam accounts comprise a disproportionate portion of the MDAU that actually generates ad revenue. So here we get a little dicey. Specifically, says Elon Musk and his team, false or spam accounts may have comprised approximately 14% of all MDAU that actually saw any ads. So that's a 14% number. Now we're almost triple what that 5% number would be. If false or spam accounts are disproportionately present in the accounts that see the most ads and generate significant revenue, 
then a large portion of Twitter's overall revenues are attributable to ads that are not being served to legitimate users. Should advertisers come to realize this, they will take their money elsewhere. This, folks, is a public document. We didn't break into the Delaware Court of Chancery to read this to you on YouTube. This is being publicized by Elon Musk at the same time that his team is saying, should anybody find out about this, this could harm Twitter materially. Now, if Elon Musk wins this case, bully for him on these kinds of concepts. If he doesn't, this is the kind of thing that actually looks like he's damaging his own company and potentially the stockholders uh, at his own company. And if he tries to negotiate a lower price or if Twitter wants to accept a lower price, all this can come swinging back around. This is an absolute mess for everybody involved at this point. Even taking Twitter's internal methodology at face value, Twitter's disclosures to the Musk parties reveal that it enables Twitter to include millions of accounts in its quarterly reported MDAU that are suspended for spam during that same quarter. Twitter suspends those accounts and it also includes them in MDAU. On the call where we discussed this with Twitter, Siegel, the chief financial officer, speculated that this approach might be justified because it might be the case that the vast majority of suspended accounts were not engaged in false or spam behavior before their suspension. But he did not represent this to be true, and Twitter has said other things in public otherwise. Now, I think here Elon Musk goes a little bit too far in terms of how useful this actually is. But again, he's trying to paint Twitter with a pretty broad brush as negative actors. Now we get into a section where Elon Musk really wants to substitute his reality for Twitter's, and this is that Twitter falsely claims that the MDAU growth was the best proxy for engagement and revenue growth at the company itself. He says they use this number. They say it's the best proxy. The implication of that description is that the metric measures actual users who see ads. And they bring up an article that describes monetizable daily active users, that MDAU concept as users who see advertising. As he goes through this analysis, then he says, well, actually, it doesn't mean that they actually see ads. He says, Twitter fails to disclose that nearly a third of MDAU sees no ads. They fail to disclose that a minimal portion of users drive a majority of the revenue. And they fail to disclose that the vast majority of MDAU growth is not occurring among those high value users. So they're collecting worthless MDAU. Twitter's own internal data demonstrates that more than 65 million MDAU in quarter one, nearly a third of the 229 million reported do not appear to be seeing any ads. This is a shocking revelation. No one reading Twitter's disclosures would think that nearly a third of Twitter's MDAU in fact see no ads and appear to generate no revenue at all. That might be the case. You can see how the facts are being argued here. I would argue on Twitter's side, we're on their counsel, monetizable means monetizable. So we've taken a broad brush approach. And yes, it doesn't necessarily equate one for one with dollar for dollar as to how we make money. But overall, when there is a rising tide, our revenue rises. And you can see that in our own financials, 13% up, 22% up, etc. But Elon Musk says, well, you could do this a lot better. And he might not be wrong. The question is, is Twitter obligated to be as accurate as Elon Musk would have them be? MDAU can be broken into four groups based on Twitter's internal data, says Mr. Musk. The first group, 29% of MDAU, is that discussed above, which sees no ads and appears to generate no revenue, despite being called monetizable. The second group, which is 41% of MDAU, sees very few ads and generates little revenue, estimated at roughly 38 cents per user per month. The third group, which is 24% of MDAU, sees some ads and generates some revenue at about three bucks per month. And the last group of power users, a mere 7% of MDAU, views lots of ads and generates the most revenue per user, roughly 11.55 per month. Now, that in of itself is arbitrary, 
splitting these things up into those particular groups. And you can draw the lines in different places. Elon Musk would have Twitter draw the lines in these places. And Elon Musk says any public disclosure of this stratification to investors would have enormous implications. Here's your public disclosure of this stratification. But if only a small percentage of users are generating significant revenue, then indiscriminately maximizing total MDAU may not grow revenues. Twitter may have a bad strategy. Here's the issue. We've talked about it already. Twitter's allowed to have a bad strategy. In fact, companies that have bad strategies are the ones that are attractive to purchasing. That doesn't make them liars with respect to their SEC disclosures because you would have had them stratify their data in a different way. This to me is not terribly compelling as an argument in a legal document, though it might be compelling in the court of public opinion slash the reporting that is done on Twitter, which may be the point. Twitter failed to disclose that the vast majority of MDAU growth is not occurring among those high value users. Twitter failed to disclose that more than half of the growth of their MDAU was in the subpopulation that sees zero ads. Now that makes a certain amount of sense just based on the percentage that were put up there. If it was just pro rata, you'd assume at least 30% were in that population. Apparently it's a little bit more than that. Meanwhile, Twitter also failed to disclose that less than 1% of their MDAU growth reflected growth within that highly engaged, what he calls power user group. This is all interesting information. This is all good analysis. This is the kind of analysis that you might discover in, oh, I don't know, pre-signing due diligence. That you didn't doesn't foreclose you from doing it now, but as an argument that the SEC filings are wrong might be a bridge too far. Still very interesting to users of Twitter and people like you and me in virtual legality, but maybe not a legal silver bullet. The statements in those paragraphs were materially false and misleading because Twitter failed to disclose that the vast majority of MDAU do not contribute materially to revenue growth. And therefore, Twitter was already dependent on its ability to increase levels of engagement, specifically because less than 1% of MDAU growth was falling within the highly concentrated group of highly engaged users who saw the majority of ads on Twitter. They're doing it wrong, Your Honor. In short, Twitter's heavy reliance on MDAU is a sham. Twitter developed its own proprietary metric, one that it could easily grow without performing the hard work necessary to attract new returning highly active legitimate users and began promoting it to investors in an attempt to manufacture steady growth in share price even when financial results faltered. It's an entirely fake Potemkin city. It's not to be believed, your honor, they're fraudsters. And wow, my goodness, uh, that is some pretty strong language coming out of Elon Musk's side of the equation. Twitter has overcounted MDAU by up to 1.9 million per quarter. These are all misrepresented double counts here. In reality, as discussed above, preliminary estimates based on only the 30% of MDAU visible in the Twitter firehose already indicate that one third of visible accounts and 10% of the MDAU count may also be false or spam. This so far afield from reasonable false or spam counting that it cannot have been the result of a good faith process. And at the very least, they were reckless with how they were putting forth this number. They didn't even use a CAPTCHA for God's sakes, says Elon Musk. This is just gut reactions from human beings. How can we ever trust a process like that? So he's saying there's fundamental flaws in their actual internal accounting really of these numbers and that they resulted in flaws in the SEC document. And again, it's, it's a step too far. The SEC stuff has to be a lie or an omission. And to the extent that you can say, hey, it's not 5%, it's 10% or it's 15%, maybe you have a case. The fact that they didn't use the metric you would have them use isn't nearly as strong as is presented here for dozens and dozens of pages. Additionally, and I promise this would come back, as Agrawal's text to Musk on April 8th, 2022 revealed, even he recognized that Twitter should be catching false or spam accounts. That's absolutely ridiculous as a piece of legal evidence. That is a CEO of a company trying to say, oh yeah, we should definitely be on that. 
kind of thing. It is not an admission of anything uh, at the company level because no matter what metric you use, if you used all of Elon Musk's suggestions and put all of the AI and stuff behind the scenes that he would request, even he would admit, I think, on his good days, uh, that something would get through on occasion. And if somebody sent him an email and said, hey, this kind of stuff bothers me, and he said, yeah, we should have caught that one. That's not an admission that all the systems and processes and procedures are wrong. That's just a CEO placating a major investor in his company. And we have more pages of this. Like I said, I wanted to get through these 91 pages. Most of this is just kind of repeating the same material. He wants to establish here that the situation was important. Twitter emphasizes the importance of MDAU and its SEC filings, mentioning the metric nearly 100 times in its 10K alone. They state that if we fail to increase our MDAU, our revenue business and operating results may be harmed, suggesting that the ordinary investor or ordinary purchaser like Elon Musk, who sees a number that is not accurate at all and is much less than he thought it was when he bought the company, should be able to take that into account as a material failure. Twitter's MDAU misrepresentations were also material because they directly correlate to potential revenue from the contemplated subscription model. Musk secured a representation in the merger agreement that the SEC disclosures were accurate in all material respects. And had the Musk parties been aware of the falsity in Twitter's SEC disclosures and thus the merger agreement, they would not have signed. Twitter is also reasonably expected to experience a material adverse effect independent of Twitter's fraud. Lovely. Opening statement, since January, Twitter has suffered a company material adverse effect as defined in the agreement itself. As explained above, MDAU is the metric Twitter discloses is most relevant to its present and future success. Following Twitter's lead, investors focus on that metric, revealing to the market that Twitter's main performance metric does not drive the performance of the business and that Twitter has been focused on growing this number instead of focusing on how to generate revenue from existing users could result in a dramatic decrease in Twitter's valuation sufficient to constitute an MAE. This reveal is happening now. This reveal is happening because of Elon Musk. This reveal is also just an assertion. Uh, It's not anything anybody can verify outside of Elon Musk uh, and his team. Uh, And so like the other things here, I don't think it's his strongest argument. His strongest argument continues to be that they weren't otherwise abiding reasonable information requests and that they were in fact uh, lying or otherwise materially omitting certain facts about their MDAU number in the SEC filing. And that would have an effect on the value of their company. This, that, hey, the fact that we are announcing this to the world in a lawsuit could reduce their value, I don't actually think rises to that level. It might well fall within a carve-out that says, hey, the stuff that we do with respect to this transaction can't otherwise constitute an MAE. More specifically, Twitter cannot satisfy its representation of warranty in Section 4.6 that its SEC filings uh, were accurate. Under Section 7.2b1, buyers are thus relieved of their obligation to close if any representation of warranty is untrue at closing. We have all of these rights, and so we are permitted to terminate. Notably, they don't mention the fact that they can't terminate if they're otherwise in breach. That comes a little bit later. Then we get that litigation that I raised my eyebrows at earlier. In 2021, India's Information Technology Ministry imposed certain rules allowing the government to probe social media posts, demand identifying information, and prosecute companies that refuse to comply. While Musk is a proponent of free speech, he believes that moderation on Twitter should hew close to the laws of the countries in which Twitter operates. Musk's team knows that going in this direction for the India probe is pretty much entirely against Elon Musk's public position in favor of free speech. So they try to put in that, yes, you should follow the government's rules. As a result of India's new rules, recent public reporting suggests that Twitter has faced various investigations by the Indian government, requests to moderate content and requests to block certain accounts. India is Twitter's third largest market, which I didn't know. And thus, any investigation into Twitter that could lead to suspensions or interruptions of surface in that market may constitute an MAE. Twitter did not disclose any such investigations to the Musk parties, 
as required by Section 4.11 of the merger agreement. There's a disclosure schedule against that representation regarding there not being litigation. However, on or around July 6, 2022, Twitter launched a legal challenge against India's government in court, challenging certain demands made by the Indian government, suggesting that Twitter was under investigation between the signing of the merger agreement and the filing of its legal challenge. Yes, you probably don't just come out with a full-on litigation without there being prior investigatory kind of discussions between those parties. So here is another thing that we haven't seen before that Elon Musk says, hey, they never told us about any of this, and that would also give rise to the ability to not close the deal. Twitter makes key decisions outside the ordinary course without consulting the Musk parties. Here we have all that stuff about employees leaving, about hiring freezes. They also say, hey, we gave a lot of consents. Contrary to what the complaint implies, Twitter did not give notice nor request consent for these various employment decisions. Accordingly, its decision to challenge the Indian government's decisions is a departure from the ordinary course. And at that meeting on May 25th, 2022, the shareholders rejected a a director uh, from participating in the direction of Twitter. He tried to tender his resignation. The board did not accept that resignation. Some more corporate governance shenanigans behind the scenes there. And the matters for which Twitter did request consent indicate that Twitter recognized it needed to request consent for these types of actions. The Musk parties withheld their consent for instance, with respect to the retention plan that Twitter mentions in their lawsuit, because they did not believe, among other things, that the retention plan was sufficiently tailored to retain only top employees and that it would reward mediocre employees with unnecessary bonus payments. That is reasonably withheld. They had a reason to withhold it. And they said, we have to talk about that retention plan. They then give a list here of times when they approved things within days, within days, within one day. And so too, did all of these consents and this process lay waste, says the lawyers, to Twitter's false narrative that Musk has reflexively and unreasonably withheld consent for other actions. Twitter's failure to seek consent for employee departures, its hiring freeze, and its lawsuit against the Indian government constitute material breaches of Section 6.1 of the merger agreement separately. So we have all these various issues. And then finally, and I think somewhat superficially, they try to answer the question of whether Elon Musk was in breach himself. So we're here in section L, we're on page 83. God, who even made it this far into the document? The judge or its clerks has probably fallen asleep at this point in time. Says the Musk parties have repeatedly approved multiple consent requests. So that's not an issue. Contrary to Twitter's assertions, the Musk parties have not improperly refused to consent to any of those requests. They always had a reason to do so. They justify those reasons here in this paragraph. And we've also complied with all of our obligations to obtain financing. Yeah, we fired some guy named Bob Swan, but we had Antonio Gracias come right in and he jumped on the financing as soon as he was brought on. So all of that is false. Twitter's referenced the removal of Swan as a red herring. Musk Party's counsel were diligently working on obtaining financing right up to termination. As late as June 27th, the Musk Party's deal counsel sent comments on the credit agreement back to Morgan Stanley and only stopped right up until the afternoon of July 8th, 2022, when they said pencils down to their counsel because they were otherwise trying to terminate the agreement. They properly terminated due to Twitter's persistent disregard of its contractual obligations. On July 12th, Twitter sued the Musk parties. That's what we talked about earlier, challenging not only their termination, but introducing blunderbuss claims, which is a great word, regarding the Musk party's supposed breach of their obligations to close, consummate the financing, provide information, consent to operational changes, refrain from disparagement and preserve confidentiality, most of which are premature and all of which are meritless. Now, I haven't gone through the answer portion of this document yet. I would expect them to address this more in that answer portion. But as it stands right now in the countersuit, they basically just say, nah, none of that happened. We're not in breach. So we can bring a breach claim against them. How can we bring a breach claim? First, they were fraudulent. 
The representations in the merger agreement were false or misleading when made. They knew they were false or misleading. That's fraud, your honor. We can rescind our deal. Also, they made misleading statements in respect to the sale of securities, shares, your honor. So that's a violation of the Securities Act because of all those false or misleading statements. That should give us the right to rescind the merger agreement. They're in breach of contract. We already talked about the fact they didn't give us the information they requested, and they instead relied on a series of extra contractual justifications. On June 6th, defendants counterclaim plaintiffs asserted that Twitter was in breach. Twitter did not cure this breach. Defendants and counterclaim plaintiffs, Elon Musk to you and I, are thus entitled to terminate. Now, like I said, this notification is a little dicey, so it'll be interesting to see if the court comments on that at all. Hey, they're just in raw breach of contract. They said they would operate in the ordinary course, your honor, and they terminated employees. They instituted a hiring freeze. They they instigated litigation in India and they fired 30% of their recruiting workforce. That's not ordinary course and they can't fix it. That breach cannot be cured. That's a right to terminate. And we ask for the court to give us a declaratory judgment that the MDAU stuff is legitimate. The revelation that Twitter's critical MDAU metric has little relation to the company's current or future value, as well as the revelation that the MDAU count is materially lower than disclosed, would breach section 4.6 of the merger agreement because it will result or would reasonably be expected to result in that material adverse effect. Declare that an MAE is at issue here in order to make our termination justified. So rescind it. Allow us to terminate it. Give us damages of some kind that we might have experienced doing all of this and tell Twitter that we're in the right overall and anything else the court wants to do. And then we get into the answer document, which will be part two of this analysis. But that is what Elon Musk has said to Twitter. How do you feel about all of that? Do you think Twitter is in the right so far? Do you think Elon Musk is in the right so far? Do you think that this is a strong counter document? And do you think, as I do, that both sides have really presented a vision of the world that one could believe as having legitimately happened, but that will ultimately come down to the facts and circumstances of the issue in question. This has been Virtually Gallic for today. As I mentioned at the top of this very long video, we are supported by viewers and listeners like you. Please do check out our Utreon if you want to get more of the resources over to us and not stuck at the platform level, or Patreon if you're more familiar with that system. Nord, special thanks to you for using those systems in order to support this channel and for sponsoring us month after month. Thank you so much. Otherwise, if you don't like any of those opportunities, just subscribe, tell your friends, ring bells, comment, answer the questions that I pose in the videos, have fun with it, and let YouTube know that you like this content. If you did watch this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.